Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 12 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Carisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. Late round tight ends, Marquise Brown, Fantasy Playoffs. Let's go. He dropped the ball! Oh, he dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? I cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep matriculating the ball down the field, boys. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. Hardly. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. Tis the season. We are officially in August, and I can tell people are starting to get back into the swing of things because I'm starting to get more questions for the podcast, which I greatly appreciate. And we're going to get to two of them today. Who's this year's Darren Waller? What to make of Marquise Brown? And I have a great segment planned concerning your fantasy playoffs. So thank you so much for listening. And please give the show a favorable rating if you are a regular listener. And as always, we're going to start with some fantasy news. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have signed LaShawn McCoy, Shady McCoy. Last year, he played for the Chiefs. He's on the wrong side of 30, but he was signed by Andy Reid a week before the regular season last year and shared the workload with Damian Williams. He did fade down the stretch, but nevertheless, it's a noteworthy signing because this added competition just kind of further complicates an already pretty perplexing Tampa Bay backfield that includes... Ronald Jones, and Keyshawn Vaughn. And it's definitely a damper to the Ronald Jones hype train. And this was a hype train that had a surprising number of experts in the fantasy community on. Uh, They were starting to climb on board there. I am not one of them. As you know, I mentioned two episodes ago that I'm avoiding this Bucks backfield as a whole because it reeks of a running back by committee. And now, even more so. And I don't think McCoy is a realistic fantasy option either. He's a, he's a veteran depth signing, but this isn't doomsday. It's not like Shady McCoy is going to come in there and take all this work and prevent Ronald Jones or Keyshawn Vaughn, Vaughn from being fantasy relevant at some point in the season. McCoy may not even make the team. I mean, he looked washed in Kansas City last year towards the end of the season. And in the playoffs, he was usually a healthy scratch. He was a healthy scratch in the Super Bowl. You know, I think the bigger takeaway in my perspective is that the Bucks weren't confident enough to go into the season with just Ronald Jones and Keyshawn Vaughn. They wanted to add a veteran back. And Bruce Arians has made this clear. He's mentioned that Devonta Freeman was too expensive. And he mentioned that he wanted somebody in to improve in pass protection and be a receiving down back for Tom Brady. And he brings in LaShawn McCoy. And I think it really just speaks to a lack of confidence in Ronald Jones and in Keyshawn Vaughn. And maybe that's just because... Keyshawn Vaughn hasn't been able to receive that practice time yet. Bruce Arians hasn't really seen him live much yet until now, I guess, because they didn't get minicamp, didn't get OTA, won't get preseason. So Bruce Arians, no stranger to adding the veteran back. Uh, He did the same thing uh, when he brought in Chris Johnson with Arizona a while ago and Andre Ellington, who's a similar prospect actually to Ronald Jones. Uh, Andre Ellington was supposed to be the starter there. And he had a lot of fantasy hype about him. He was going like in the fifth or fourth round of drafts. And they brought in Chris Johnson right before the season. He split the workload with Ellington. And eventually both were beaten out by David Johnson, who was a third-round rookie at that time, who exploded in, I think it was like the final six or seven games of that season. But that's kind of neither here nor there. But to me, the fact that he felt the need to bring in LaShawn McCoy is the bigger story. I mean, this is one of the big reasons that I have not been too high on Rojo and that I wasn't really getting on the hype train myself because I I thought that this possibility definitely existed with Devonta Freeman. And I don't know what it says about Devonta Freeman out there if McCoy is getting signed over Freeman. I think that's a bad sign there. But kind of buried within this story is also the fact that Ian Rappaport reported that Shady McCoy also had talks with the Philadelphia Eagles before signing with Tampa. And that it could be even that could loom even larger for fantasy football. Because if if Philadelphia signs somebody like Freeman, and you can say what you want about Miles Sanders and how talented he is, 
And some experts will even be stubborn with it if they do add a veteran back like Devonta Freeman and think that Freeman won't have a real impact. But if Philly signs Freeman, it's hard to really justify Miles Sanders in the top 16. And I'll feel a lot better about Miles Sanders if we can just kind of fast forward to September 12th or whenever the Eagles play their first game and see that they have not added another veteran back. Because Doug Peterson admitted in an interview with Matthew Berry at the NFL Combine that they really missed Jordan Howard after he went down last year and that they wanted to bring in somebody to play that role. And then a few months later, Doug Peterson strongly implied they missed out on Carlos Hyde when he signed with Seattle. So Miles Sand, and then here we have a situation where McCoy was in talks with the Eagles. So Miles Sanders may be the next big thing at running back. And certainly if he's given the keys to the car, we've seen him show the ability to post top seven running back numbers. But it sounds like the Eagles want to bring somebody else in. So we'll see. Sanders will rise on my draft board once I'm more assured that the Eagles won't bring in somebody like Devonta Freeman or Lamar Miller, whoever it is. And you may be thinking, you know, I don't know, Nick, I think you're kind of overblowing this, but we saw this exact same thing with Damian Williams last year, where McCoy came in a week before the season and just made that a running back by committee. Again, coaches aren't always rational. They don't always do the thing that we think that they should do. But then running backs coach Deuce Staley just today talked Sanders up. So yeah, I mean, Miles Sanders, pretty tough read. I mean, I remain lower on him than most experts, but I see why some experts do have him late in round one. There is obviously potential and upside there with his skill set and in that offense. And there's potential in the Tampa Bay offense as well. I mean, we should see an above-average offense. This is a Tom Brady-led offense. They got the great receivers. They have a pretty uh, rock-solid offensive line. So we should see a top-10 scoring offense in Tampa. So theoretically, this backfield could have value. But one of these guys, whether it's LaShawn McCoy, Keyshawn Vaughn, Ronald Jones, needs to step up and really be the guy. Otherwise, this is going to be a very frustrating situation. And I think when you have one of these unclear or really muddy RBVCs that are all similar players, then you might as well draft the one that is the cheapest in drafts. And I have a feeling that could be Keyshawn Vaughn. So if he's like slides to round 13 or something like that, maybe that's the play there. That's that. I mean, at least that's the only play I'm really interested in because I still think Ronald Jones would be going too high. And I really can't get on board with drafting LaShawn McCoy in really any round because I just, I'm not positive that's going to last. So yeah, maybe the play is to be allowing Keyshawn Vaughn to fall here in drafts and then kind of scooping him up in the team. So we will see how that plays out. We have our first training camp injury. Bills right guard John Feliciano tore his pec while working out. And I actually bench pressed today, so that makes me a little queasy kind of just thinking about that. But Feliciano, much stronger than I am, he started 15 of 17 possible games for the Buffalo Bills last season, including playoffs, and he's a solid player. The Bills were expected to bring back five of five offensive line starters, which is important this offseason, now more than ever, as they say in the COVID phrase of the year. Now the right side of their offensive line looks pretty weak, and I wonder if they'll have to kick right tackle Cody Ford, rookie last year, over inside a right guard. Uh, We will see there, but definitely a little ding on Josh Allen, Devin Singletary, and company. So I also, speaking of COVID, I wanted to clear up something in advance regarding the reserve COVID-19 list you may be reading about and explain how it will really impact fantasy football. And there's an important distinction between the reserve COVID-19 list and opting out for the 2020 season. So being placed on reserve COVID list is when a player either contracts the virus or has been associated or exposed to the virus through others. So a player who gets placed on the COVID-19 reserve list does not necessarily have COVID. And the team has to be transparent by placing somebody on this list if they fit those requirements that I just explained. And they're obligated to report it. But they do not have to make the distinction, publicly at least, whether a specific player is on that list because he himself has COVID or whether it's just a precautionary move because he's quarantining or because he may have been exposed. So there will be situations where players who go on this reserve COVID list come back in two days, and there will be situations where they stay out for two weeks or longer. So a few notable names for fantasy football have already been placed on this reserve COVID-19 list already. Kenny Galladay, TJ Hawkinson, rookies, Justin Jefferson and Keyshawn Vaughn. And again, we don't know 
if they have COVID and they will miss a large portion of, of training camp, or if they are just quarantining and they'll be released once they show no symptoms or test negative for a few days, they could be released tomorrow. We don't really know. But it's worth mentioning that if, if some of these rookies like Vaughn or Justin Jefferson miss a significant portion of camp, I mean, this is the only practice time they get. No mini camps, no OTAs. You know, they've just had Zoom sessions. And that does not bode well for them starting out the season fast from a fantasy perspective. No preseason either. I didn't even mention that. That's pretty important. Uh, so we'll see how much practice time they miss before we evaluate, reevaluate their situation. But more importantly, there are players who have opted out for the 2020 season. We already covered Damian Williams, and he's kind of the headliner there. But there's, there's, a, there's a large list already. The new addition since the last episode, Giants left tackle Nate Solder. And he and his son have had cancer issues with cancer in the past. So the decision seem, seems necessary and wise. And Solder is an above-average starter. He had a down year last year, and he seemed to kind of wear down, possibly due to age. But this prompted the Giants to spend the number four, number four overall pick on Georgia offensive tackle Andrew Thomas, who I presume will take over the blindside and you know blindside protection duties for the young Daniel Jones. The initial plan was to have Andrew Thomas play right tackle in year one and then shift to left tackle in year two, presumably after they cut Nate Solder. But the Giants don't really have that luxury anymore. So luckily, the Giants did draft another lineman, Matt Pert, in round three, and he'll compete with Nick Gates for the starting right tackle spot. But Daniel Jones fumbled like 67 times last season. I mean, actually, I think it was like 19 or something like that. It was still a crazy number. And at least somewhat of the blame was because of the Giants' shoddy tackle situation it was just so sorry Daniel Jones was under pressure on 42 percent of his dropbacks last season that was the second highest mark in the NFL so hopefully Andrew Thomas can help Daniel Jones take care of the football this season so let's get to the answer questions all right this first question is from Logan in New Orleans and he asks who is your George Kittle slash Darren Waller this year? I was lucky enough in my last two draft guides, the top sleeper I listed as the tight end position was Kittle two years ago and Darren Waller last year. So I think that's why Logan is asking the question. I know he reads my guide every year. And while those guys were massive hits, we also can't ignore that I was also extremely high on O.J. Howard last year. Hello, darkness, my old friend. So sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And unfortunately, the other harsh reality of the situation is there might not, might not be a George Kittle or Darren Waller every year. I mean, these guys were diamonds in the rough. But as I mentioned in my last episode, there's an intriguing number of athletic prospects who are tight ends who are drafted between tight end 10 and tight end 24. So if you punt the position in your draft, you'll really have plenty of options to take a swing at. So Logan, the way I see it, to be a real breakout, like not just a nice pick where you outperform the expectations of where you drafted him, but like a real Kittle slash Waller league winning pick. I think you need talent and you need opportunity. And a lot of these later round options or tight ends, they have one of those elements, one of those two elements. Like Dallas Goddard has the talent, but really no opportunity to have that kind of season. I mean, he needs Zach Ertz to go down for him to bust it wide open. So, And then there's Blake Jarwin in, in Dallas. He seems to be talented, and he might have the opportunity with Jason Witten gone, but now C.D. Lamb is there. So I think his upside is capped to just being a good tight end and not elite. So I'm going to rule out tight ends. So I'm going to rule out those tight ends that, you know, may be really talented, but don't really have the opportunity. And I'm also going to rule out tight ends on new teams or rookie tight ends, because I think historically those are bad bets in year one. So Hayden Hurst and Austin Hooper, while I see the potential, I'm not really betting on it, especially in this COVID shortened off season. And, and their average draft position anyway is already a low end tight end one. And I'm looking for somebody who I think you can get at a cost that's near free, someone later than that. So I'm also going to rule out tight ends who have an uncertain quarterback situation, like Mike Jasicki in Miami. And I do think Mike Jasicki, obviously, 
an athletic freak of a talent, probably a better athlete than football player. And so he has the athleticism, at least, to reach Darren Waller breakout territory. But with a rookie quarterback for half the season in Tua, I'm not really so sure that he can hit that. So Ian Thomas is another one. I think Teddy Bridgewater is a very accurate quarterback, but they've never played together. And Bridgewater has shown, he's never really, he's never really shown the ability to support more than one pass catcher in his career. And they have Christian McCaffrey, DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, Robbie Anderson. So I don't know if the opportunity is there for Thomas either. Maybe I should have included him and above with Goddard, with Blake Jarwin. So, but either way, Ian Thomas, he could be surprisingly valuable this year as like a streamer, but I don't think he's the answer to this total breakout question. So I'm left with a few names that I think could be great talents in the future and who are also on the same team as last year and preferably they've played with their quarterback before. So TJ Hawkinson, Noah Fant, Janu Smith, Chris Herndon, and Irv Smith. Those are kind of the five guys I'm narrowing in on for this question. And these are all second or third year tight ends who have shown athletic slash wide receiver like traits. And they're all still kind of raw, but that's okay because normally it takes a year or two before tight ends really show their worth in the NFL. Tight end is an extremely difficult position to transition from in college. And Hawkinson and Fant have a first round pedigree. They were taken in the top 20 picks of the draft two years ago. So the ability is there. And I love that because I think it makes them really strong bets to have nice second years. The teams are invested in their success. But in terms of opportunity, Kittle and Waller were so great because they were option A or option B on their teams. They were not option C or D. So I could easily see Stafford valuing TJ Hawkinson, but there's just a lot of mouths to feed in that Detroit offense. You know, Kenny Galladay. Marvin Jones. Danny Amendola in the slot. You know, they drafted DeAndre Swift in round two. They want to run the ball more. So, and then Noah Fant, same situation there. Denver may be a conservative run first team. We don't really know what to expect from Drew Locke. But then they also have Cortland Sutton, Melvin Gordon. They drafted Jerry Judy in round one. They drafted K.J. Hamler uh, a round or two later. So there's a lot of competition for targets when you talk about T.J. Hawkinson and Noah Fant, who are probably the two of the most talented tight ends who could have a George Kittle or Darren Waller-like breakout season. So I'll go on to the, another option here is Chris Herndon. He had a really strong rookie season. Uh, with the Jets before missing almost the entire year last year with off-field injuries and injury issues. And he could be option B, maybe even option A, but probably option B behind Jamison Crowder for Sam Darnold because his starting wide receivers for the Jets, Brashad Perriman, who he's never played with, and Denzel Mims, he's also never played with, who's a second-round rookie. And they're on. those are the starting outside receivers for the Jets. So that creates opportunity there for Chris Herndon. And I think Chris Herndon's also pretty talented, the one impediment there, or the one roadblock, is Adam Gase. The world. I feel like Adam Gase will probably try to find a way to screw that up. So I'll move on to the next one. Janu Smith, he's going under the radar. He's the Titans t- tight end. And he'll be replacing Delaney Walker for Tennessee this season. And what I like about Smith is that even though the offense runs through Derrick Henry and there's not a ton of passing volume for Ryan Tannehill and company, Smith could be the second. He could be second on this team in targets behind A.J. Brown. And Johnny Smith is a yak monster. I mean, he ranks first and second after every metric that has to do with anything about yards after the catch. And he's a 93rd percentile spark athlete at the NFL Combine. And, and he has a quality 8.2 career yards per target average, according to Hayden Winks of Roto World. And there's obviously... Serious volume concerns, as I mentioned. Last year, Winks actually wrote in Smith's bio that in the 13 games with Tannehill last season, who was on fire, Smith still only averaged 3.6 targets and 30 receiving yards a game. And that was a lot of that was with Delaney Walker out. And for the entirety of the 2019 regular season, Smith finished just as tight end 31 in points per game. And that's obviously unacceptable from a fantasy perspective. So Smith obviously did not show 
much at all after Delaney Walker got hurt in week seven last season. And he was not a legitimate fantasy option from that point going forward. But he does have the skill set, the athleticism, and I would say the opportunity to make some noise. I like him as a sleeper tight end. And another guy I like is lastly, Irv Smith. I think he's really intriguing because he was a second round draft pick last year. He was a rookie. And his role grew dramatically over the course of the season. And in games one through seven, Irv Smith out of Alabama, he was on the field for just under 50% of the team's snaps. But in games 8 through 15, that increased to 70%. He was on the field for 70% of the team's snaps uh, towards the end of last season. And that's a stat brought to you by Josh Norris. In the final five games, Kyle Rudolph tailed off big time, like statistically. His final five games, he had 17 targets, only 12 catches in the final five games for 101 total yards and one touchdown during weeks 14 through 19. And that includes playoff, the two playoff games, obviously. So notably, Rudolph was Rudolph's numbers fell off because he was in more of a timeshare with Irv Smith down the stretch. And after the bye week, the two tight ends saw nearly like a 50-50 timeshare in snaps in the final six games after the Vikings' bye week. And again, you know, having your tight end play 70% of the snaps, which Irv Smith was doing, is... A pretty good number. And Irv Smith actually had more, he ran more routes than Kyle Rudolph in that span. So according to Graham Barfield, Irv Smith ran 143 routes, pass routes, after their week 12 bye, including postseason. And Kyle Rudolph only ran 131. So you can see and inspect Irv Smith to have an expanded role in this offense in 2020. And I think he's a better tight end than Kyle Rudolph. And I think he's talented enough to be a top 10 tight end. And the Vikings will want to keep Irv Smith on the field in an effort to keep their third wide receiver, Tajay Sharp, off the field. And again, I've mentioned in the previous episode, the episode right before this one, is that the Vikings can expect more passing volume their way because they were just able to run the ball at will with Dalvin Cook last year. And their defense allowed them to do that. And now... Their defense has been decimated in the offseason. I don't think they'll have that luxury, that positive game flow. So we could see the Vikings passing more. You like that? You like that? And I haven't even mentioned, Stephon Diggs is not on the team anymore. So they're losing a lot of valuable targets. So maybe Earth Smith, as long as he can beat out Kyle Rudolph, which I do expect him to, Irv Smith can be, play a much bigger fantasy role here. So to be honest, Logan, I haven't really landed on the next George Kittle or Darren Waller, and I don't know if any of these guys will be him, but my best guesses would be TJ Hawkinson, Noah Fant, Irv Smith, Jonu Smith, and Chris Herndon. Those are my top five to that answer. And I'll also throw in a little bonus there too. I'd, I'd like to throw a little love to Jay Sternberger's way especially for mainly for deeper leagues because he's my favorite kind of deep sleeper tight end who's really not being drafted. And Aaron Rodgers needs to find someone other than Devontae Adams to make plays. And Devin Fungus just opted out of the 2020 season. Alan Lazard... You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. ...has shown flashes. And Aaron Rodgers has kind of talked him up every now and then, but that's putting a lot of faith in the Lizard King, or the Lazard King, I should say. And, and Jimmy Graham is now gone, and Sternberger is somebody who kind of redshirted last season but had a productive college career at Texas A&M. And I think Sternberger will likely go undrafted in most fantasy leagues, but he's worth keeping an eye on if he shows out in week one. And I actually have Sternberger as my tight end 18, which doesn't sound like much, but it's actually considerably higher than any expert that I've seen. So I just wanted to give him some due respect here. Because I thought he was a fitting kind of uh, bonus or dark horse for your question. But I appreciate the question, Logan. And I will keep everyone posted as I start to narrow down to like one or two of those guys who I'm uh, more aggressively targeting at the end of drafts. So let's move on to the next question. This next Instagram question comes from Hunter from Slidell, Louisiana. And as a reminder, if you want your fantasy football questions answered on the show, I am at it's on Instagram at fantasy law guys. You can hit me up there and I'll do my best to answer your question on the show. But Hunter from Slidell, he asked, Hey, question for your pod. What are your thoughts on Marquise Brown? I liked him a month or two ago, but 
Now I'm seeing a bunch of mainstream media hyping him up super hard, which is turning me off. That's what she said. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Michael. Michael, please. So that's a fabulous question by Hunter. And he is right that the quote unquote mainstream media, I'm guessing he's a listener to this podcast. Uh, he is correct that a lot of experts are on Marquise Brown this season. And he's really a fascinating case because there's a wide range of outcomes of what could really, things that could go really, really right for Marquise Brown or things that could go really, really poorly. And I'm going to get through the negatives and the positives, but let me lay down the background here. Last year, Marquise Brown, a rookie out of Oklahoma, and he sustained a Liz Frank injury, which is a foot issue in college. And teams knew about this. It's one of the reasons he kind of fell to Picked, I think it was 24 in the draft. And this is something that he played through during his rookie season. And the Ravens head coach, John Harbaugh, admitted that Marquise Brown was rarely at 100% in 2019. And Marquise Brown himself has said on social media that he was never at 100% and that he didn't have his full speed back because he's always been recovering from this Liz Frank injury. And he also had an ankle sprain last year he was dealing with, too. At nearly every game, Marquise Brown last year had some sort of injury designation, whether it was questionable or game, game time decision or out. He missed a few games. So Brown was very hit or miss when he did play in his rookie season. And he was mostly miss, honestly, unfortunately, he, with the exception of a few blow-up games. And week one was one of those games where he took the league by storm with two bomb touchdowns and played only 14 snaps in that in that game. And a lot of people weren't really sure if it was just because the Ravens were blowing out the Dolphins. They won by like 50 points. But it became clear after that that Marquise Brown was pretty much on a pitch count for the rest of the season. Marquise Brown only played 75% of, the te- of his team's snaps in three games all last season. So he was not a full-time player. He was more of a rotation player And in terms of even when he was on the field, he was not really that effective for fantasy football. Because after that blow-up game, Marquise Brown only caught 42 passes for 437 yards and five touchdowns over his next 13 games of the rest of the season after that initial blow-up game against the tanking Miami Dolphins. You know, in in terms of game logging, uh, from my perspective, Marquise Brown, I had him for 15 games. It's 14 regular season and one playoff game I counted where he did play well. He had, he had seven catches for 126 yards, 19.6 fantasy points in that playoff game. Uh, the 15 total games that he played, he scored 166 points, and that's only 11.07 points per game. And that's actually wide receiver 40 pace, which is not good at all. I mean, barely fantasy relevant, honestly. So what's changed? So what's changed is that he's had the screw removed from his foot in February and has reportedly had a great offseason physically. So he's more than one year removed from that Liz Frank injury and he's declared himself 100% healthy. So we can kind of expect to see more snaps, obviously, and for him to be more explosive in year two. And he's already was pretty, or he seemed pretty explosive in those few blow-up games that he did have. But Brown's been hyping himself up and telling his fans to expect big things. So I think that's where some of the hype comes from. But also, in in terms of the expert community, the league MVP is his quarterback, right? Lamar Jackson Jackson. is his quarterback. And the Ravens offense only trailed on 19% of their plays last season, the lowest rate in the league. And I know... I've spewed out that stat probably three or four times in this podcast's young existence. But it's a very important stat that speaks to the fact that the Ravens are going to have to throw more next season, which is good for Marquise Brown and the passing offense. Among all NFL quarterbacks who played 15 or more games, Lamar Jackson had the fewest amount of passing attempts. And yet Lamar Jackson led the NFL in passing touchdowns last year. So the Ravens were far and away the most run-heavy team in the league. So more passing volume is expected. I mean, it has to be. It has to come. They will not be blowing out every single team like they were last year and just being able to sit on leads and and use their running game. And the Ravens 
wide, and this is great news for Marquise Brown because the Ravens' wide receiver depth chart behind Marquise Brown is arguably the worst in the NFL. This thing will never hold together. I mean, after Mark Andrews at tight end, who seems to be Lamar Jackson's go-to guy, especially in scoring position, the Ravens are just completely devoid of legitimate pass catchers. This is horrible. A healthy Marquise Brown would immediately become Lamar Jackson's best wide receiver. And the alternatives are like Miles Boykin, Chris Moore, Willie Sneed, and a few rookie wide receivers that the Ravens drafted in the later rounds who, you know, I do project for them to play roles and maybe take Willie Sneed's job. But overall, the cupboard is empty after Marquise Brown at wide receiver for the Ravens. So he could command a very attractive target share from Lamar Jackson, the league MVP who made major strides as a passer, clearly, and frankly is is much more accurate of a quarterback than people give him credit for. He's got a nice deep ball as well, which fits Marquise Brown's strengths. So those are the positives. I mean, we could see an extremely explosive season, but there's two sides to every case, and we need to explore the negatives here as well because there's some big ones. And I'm going to open with Marquise Brown's size because it makes him a very bad bet historically for fantasy production. Adam Levitan of Establish the Run, he tweeted that Marquise Brown is 5'9", 170 with a Liz Frank on his resume. And the full list of fantasy wide receivers since 2012 who have finished top 10 at their position and who are less than 180 pounds, again, Marquise Brown's 170, is nobody. No receiver less than 180 pounds since 2012 has been a top 10 fantasy receiver for any season since 2012. And that's that threshold was 180 pounds. Marquise Brown's 170. So he also went on to say that I believe the public grossly exaggerates and is overconfident in their ability to pinpoint outliers. Maybe Hollywood Brown will be an outlier, but I'm willing to bet against it. So the wide receivers who are as small as Marquise Brown are not great fantasy bets for two reasons, I think. First, because they are more sizzle and flash than actual production in terms of fantasy points. Like if you're thinking Marquise Brown can be Deshaun Jackson in his prime, you might be shocked to learn that prime Deshaun Jackson was only a top 12 fantasy receiver for one year in his entire career. 2013, that's it. Even in Deshaun Jackson's prime, his average season was only about 1,000 yards and six touchdowns on only like 55 catches just because of the way he plays the game. Deshaun Jackson has never had a top 10 fantasy wide receiver season. So if you're thinking that, oh, Marcus Bauer reminds me of Deshaun Jackson, that might not be necessarily a good thing. Even if it's Deshaun Jackson in his prime, who without question is one of the greatest deep threats in NFL history. These deep threats often have more, much more value on a real football field than they do in your fantasy lineups. And you remember their big plays because they're flash, they're splash plays, they're big plays. But in fantasy, they just aren't consistent. And by years in, they usually don't end up among the top fantasy wide receivers. And the second reason, or one reason for that, is that traditional deep threats, like small, speedy receivers like Marquise Brown, are huge injury risk. They get hurt, and they get hurt often. And it makes sense when you think about it. The routes that they are running are full-on sprints from some of the fastest football players in the game, and they're consistently sprinting 30 or 40 yards down the field over and over again. So yeah, you're going to see them pull a hammy. You're going to see their calves tighten up. You're going to see torn quadriceps, stuff like that. And we see it with Will Fuller every year, and we see it with Deshaun Jackson every year, and we saw it with T.R.I. Hilton last year. We saw it with Tyreek Hill last year, and we even saw it with Marquise Brown in his rookie year already with the Liz Frank injury and the ankle sprain that he was dealing with last season. And a receiver like Marquise Brown getting hurt is double jeopardy. It's a double whammy because they have to rely on their speed so much because that's what makes them valuable that when the speed is taken away due to a nagging or minor injury, they're done. They can't adjust or adapt or find other ways to be productive from a fantasy standpoint. They can't use their height or their physicality to be a red zone target. 
They can't really be a possession receiver. That's not, that's not their style. It's very different when Michael Thomas has to play through like a high ankle sprain after a few weeks and when Deshaun Jackson does. Because Michael Thomas nursing an injury can, or playing through an injury, can win in other ways. He's an incredible crisp route runner. He can win with timing and chemistry with Drew Brees, back shoulder fades. He can win with his physicality in the red zone. He can win on jump balls. He can still score touchdowns. He can be fed with short passes on crossing routes. He can break tackles. When Deshaun Jackson gets hurt, or when Marquise Brown gets hurt, it takes them longer to regain that full speed, and they can't really win in other ways until they get back to full speed, to 100%. Whereas Michael Thomas can play at 70% health and still produce from a fantasy perspective. Not as much, but he can still be valuable. So basically, you're kind of playing with fire. When you draft these, you know, one-dimensional deep threats. And even if they manage to stay healthy over a full season, the vast majority of the time, the end result is not a top 12 receiver, as I've just mentioned. The upside is not quite as high as people think. So the other negative, I mentioned that one of Marquise Brown's positives is that the Ravens have no other wide receivers. So Brown's target share when they do pass will be high. But Lamar Jackson has been working out with Antonio Brown on occasion for the last few months now. And by the way, Antonio Brown is Marquise Brown's cousin. So that could be another reason why Lamar Jackson, or another connection there for why the Ravens might sign him. Lamar Jackson has tweeted, the he tweeted the other day that he wants the Ravens to sign Antonio Brown and the Ravens could use a guy like him. So Antonio Brown will probably be suspended for four to six games when he finds a team. But the Ravens are in a win-now, Super Bowl or bust situation to where they could be persuaded to sign Antonio Brown, to push them over the top, to push them over the Kansas City Chiefs. And if Antonio Brown is signed by Baltimore, then he'll be the go-to target in a low passing volume offense. And in fact, again, is the most run-heavy offense in the NFL, who I didn't even mention added another running back in round two in J.K. Dobbins. And in that scenario, Marquise Brown is just nothing more than Christian Kirk, who's going in like round nine or ten. So yeah, very strong arguments on both sides, like both for and against Marquise Brown. And at his average draft position right now, his ADP is in the early 70s, wide receiver 30-ish. So people, you know, when they hear that, that you have to spend like around six or seven pick on him, usually they think to themselves, oh, wow, I did not realize he was being drafted that high. Or they think the polar opposite, which is, oh, yeah, I like that upside for a for a round seven pick as my wide receiver three. So, you know, despite all the risk associated with Marquise Brown, you know, I'm comfortable selecting him, especially in round seven, just because of that upside. I'm, I'm comfortable with betting that he will be an outlier just because the situation is so great. You know, he's supposedly 100% healthy now on a team where he'll be the number one receiving target for the MVP of the NFL. And that's a very simple argument that I can get behind. But even if I'm drafting him in round seven, thinking that he'll be an outlier because he's in this great situation, you can't be expecting Marquise Brown to play a full season. He is extremely similar to Will Fuller. I think that both of them are extremely similar prospects. And if you like one of them, you really have to like the other one. And they should be going at similar spots in the draft. And again, I'm comfortable with taking both of them because even though they're not a strong bet to finish in the top 12 because of the injury risk, I think that they could finish in the top 12 and maybe points per game. And even if we get eight games from each of them, if you have, let's say, even a top 16 receiver in those eight games, then that to me justifies a late sixth, early round, early seventh round pick. So, all right, I hope that helps clear things up for you, Hunter, on Marquise Brown. I gave you the whole spectrum, all the arguments for and against. But let's do a two-minute warning rant. And forewarning, this is actually, this is going to be a rant, but it is not going to be two minutes. It's going to be much longer. And that's because it is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And it's one of the most passionate stances in my entire life. I kid you not. So I hope that you will take the next, I'm going to say seven to 10 minutes to listen to this rant and to heed my advice. 
Today, I'm going to tell you why you need to upgrade your fantasy football playoff system, and I'm going to tell you how. So if you still have a playoff system that has single elimination, head-to-head matchups, listen carefully because your playoff system is absolute trash. The goal of the fantasy playoffs should be to reward the best team and the team that finishes the strongest at season's end. We should not be playing single elimination head-to-head matchups because there's too much variance or flukiness and sometimes the best scores aren't even rewarded. For example, let's say your 1v4 matchup ends with a final score of 75 to 70 and your 2v3 matchup on the other side of the bracket ends with a score of 140 to 135. Well, in that scenario, a team who drops 75 points gets rewarded and gets to play in the championship over a team who scored 135 points in the same round. All because of the luck of the scheduling draw, which is a ridiculous concept that does not jive with competitive fantasy football where the seeding simply does not matter. There's rarely a difference between the three seed and the six seed in a fantasy football league. But in real football, the three seed has earned a massive competitive advantage over the six seed in that playoff game, and that's home field advantage. And fantasy football does not account for home field advantage, at least not fairly. But another common playoff problem that people have is the classic six-team playoff where two teams get a bye week. And the issue with that is that the top two teams are determined by regular season record only and not points. If the team in third has 200 more points than the team in first or second, I'd argue they deserve the bye, but they don't get it. And this is a massive, massive disadvantage. So they're missing out on a bye simply because of the luck of their fantasy schedule. They allowed more points than team one or two and had a tougher schedule, which unlike in real football where you play defense and affect the amount of points that you allow in fantasy, Points allowed in your schedule draw are things that are 100% luck-based and totally out of your control. So they should not be having this massive impact in determining who gets the buy and who doesn't. And the other problem with this system is that even after the first round of the playoffs, you're down to four teams in a single elimination matchup, and then you still get the same problems I discussed above, where one matchup is extremely low-scoring and pitiful, and the other matchup is stacked. Every team that makes the playoffs should be on a level playing field. And we should increase the matchups to get rid of variance or fluky outcomes. And ESPN tried this because so many people complained about one-week matchups in the playoffs. ESPN, the most popular fantasy website in the world, acknowledged this when they tried three years ago to adopt quote-unquote two-week matchups. However, the issue with two-week matchups is that it starts a week earlier and it takes away a week or two of fun for everyone. Not to mention, you can have the same problem as I mentioned above, where the 1v4 matchup winner scores far fewer points than the 2v3 matchup loser, but yet they still get to advance. In addition, six teams making the playoffs in a league of 12 is a 50% playoff rate, and that seems awfully high. But oftentimes, people argue that four teams out of 12, a 33% playoff rate is far too low. And I agree with both of those things. But therein lies yet another problem with single or double week matchups. You have to put either the top four teams or the top six teams in. That leaves no room for adding a wildcard team or no room for an odd number of teams because you have to follow this strict single game structure. And don't even get me started on week 17. Most fantasy leagues have moved away from having their championships in week 17, as they should. But eliminating week 17 altogether is not without debate or consequences. The truth is that every week matters and week 17 presents different challenges just like every other week. And the game of fantasy is about adapting to the circumstances on the field and fielding the best lineup you possibly can. Every week, without exception, week 17 in that respect is no different. Furthermore, eliminating week 17 also takes away a week of fun for everyone, which sucks because we only get fantasy football for 16 or 17 weeks of the entire year, so we may as well enjoy it to the maximum capacity because Lord knows we look forward to it for far more weeks in the year than we actually play it. But while I do advocate playing through the entire season, which includes week 17, I, like most everybody else, do not want my week 17 solely determining my fantasy championship. In fact, I'd argue you don't want any one week determining who wins your league. And some savvy leagues have recognized the importance of not having single game matchups in, in the fantasy postseason 
but also don't want their championship to include week 17 at all. So because of the exclusion of week 17, they have to start their playoffs in week 13. This is too early, not only because everyone deserves more than 12 regular season games when they play fantasy football, but also there are bye weeks in week 13 this season. So any playoffs that include week 13 are unacceptable. Therefore, fantasy managers are faced with the tough choice of either having ESPN's default of double matchups or including week 17 because they can't have it both ways. And if the goal of fantasy playoffs is to reward the best team and the team that finishes the strongest, none of these commonly used playoff systems that are used in like 99% of fantasy leagues come even remotely close to accomplishing this. So you're probably thinking to yourself right now, okay, we've got all these problems with the fantasy playoffs. They all suck. We get it. But what's your solution? My solution is fair and simple. You adopt the Garisco playoff format. That's GPF for short, where every playoff team plays against every playoff team during weeks 15 through 17. And the team with the best playoff record at the end wins the league. So let's break this down. Each team accumulates a win or a loss result against all other playoff teams for weeks 15, 16, and 17. Every team plays every team each week. So let's say you are one of the four teams that make the playoffs. And in week 15, you score 100 points. And you outscore two of the other playoff teams that week. But one of the teams scores 120 and outscores you. Well, because you beat two of the teams and because you lost to one, your record currently sits at 2-1 and one for week 15. And then in week 16, let's say you outscore everyone. You have a great week. You have the most points among the three other playoff teams for week 16. Now you go 3-0 and that week, which brings your total combined playoff record for weeks 15 and 16 to 5-1. and one. And then let's say in week 17, you only outscore one playoff team and you go one and two that week. Now your combined total playoff record is now six and three. At that point, each playoff team has a nine game sample or a nine game mini season that they've accumulated in the playoffs because they've played every team for three weeks. And the team with the best overall win loss record, so one team may be six and three, one team may be seven and two, you may go nine and oh. But the team with the best overall win loss record during the postseason wins the league and is declared the champion. It sounds easy enough and it definitely sounds fair. How could it not be? Everyone is playing everyone every week. So there's no unlucky scheduling draw. There's no one fluky performance that kicks people out. We get a much larger, much more accurate nine game sample over three weeks to determine who the best team is that also finished strongest. Now you may be asking, what if multiple teams end up with the same postseason record? Like two teams finish six and three, for example, or two teams finish five and four. Well, in that case, the tiebreaker goes to the team with the most total points in the regular season plus playoffs. This allows the best teams throughout the entire year to have a tie-breaking home field advantage of sorts. It makes it so where total points, which at the end of the day are the actual indicator of the best teams in fantasy football, it makes it so where total points matter. That is your home field advantage. In the event of two teams tying in record, the championship goes to the better team throughout the season, most total points in regular season plus playoffs. That only seems like the most fair solution, right? The beauty of the Garisco playoff format is that you still get the fun of head-to-head matchups that will come down to beating your opponents. And it's even more fun when you're competing against three other scores or three other teams each week, not just one. So your chances are far greater that at least one win-loss outcome each week will be determined by Sunday night football or Monday night football. It brings a lot more excitement to the playoffs. You don't get complaints about scheduling. You also get to minimize Week 17's impact. It's only one-third of this playoff system. So Weeks 15 and 16 matter much more than Week 17 as they should. But you still get to maximize the season by enjoying each week and playing the season to its fullest. And because the playoffs are only three weeks instead of four like they are on ESPN, you get to allow the rest of the league to also play fantasy football for another week. And hey, if you want to leave week 17 out of it completely and you get that option with the Garisco playoff format because it's only three weeks long and you can schedule weeks 14 through 16 without including week 13 in it because as I've mentioned week 13 has bye weeks in it so that just speaks to another great aspect of the Garisco playoff format and that is flexibility 
because now you don't need an even number of playoff teams to go through this rigid structure. You can have an odd number of playoff teams. So as I mentioned above, let's say you're in a 12-team league and you think four playoff teams is too little and six is too many. Well, the Garisco playoff format allows you to put five teams in. No problem. Same exact setup. You just have a 12-game mini sample instead of a nine-game mini sample at season's end. Another great idea if you're in a 12-team league is you have the top four teams in standings get in, and now you can allow a points-based 15 wildcard in there based on whichever team has the most points that maybe didn't get into the playoffs, regardless of their record. Because there's always that one guy or girl with a great team that ends up getting screwed by the schedule because they end up playing the top-scoring team every week, it seems like. Look, I invented this system when I was 19 years old, and I've been using this system in every league I commissioned for the last 10 years. And we have never, not once, had a single complaint. Not one. People have told me it's the best thing about my fantasy football leagues. People have told me that it's the best thing about me, just as a person. But seriously, I can't count how many conversations I've had with people who have tried the Garisco playoff format and then have never went back because their league loved it too. Your fantasy playoffs are the most important weeks of the regular season and they need to be done right. The current systems out there are not only inherently and patently unfair, they are pathetic and lame. Nobody using the Garisco playoff format questions whether a winner deserved their championship or not because they had nine games against three other teams spanning over three weeks to determine whose team was the best when it counted the most. Every team plays against every team for every week during the playoffs. I strongly, emphatically urge you, if you take anything away from this entire podcast series, please let it be this. Improve your playoff system. Adopt the Garisco playoff format. Every playoff team plays every playoff team every week, and you will never look back. Actually, you will look back on your old system, but only to mock it and only to laugh at and wonder how you played in such an archaic, unjust, Stone Age system. Garisco playoff format, GPF, tell your commissioner to implement this today, right now. Your league is waiting for this, and your league will thank you. And that'll conclude today's episode. And as a reminder, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, it takes fewer than five seconds to hit the subscribe button and give this podcast a five-star rating. You can do this right after you've sent your commissioner a text begging them to adopt the Garisco playoff format. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.